Well, good morning. Hello, Crossroads. It's good to, and, and it's an honor for me to be here. I've been here all weekend with your pastor and his precious wife. It's just an honor to know him. We have become such good friends. And um, I, I just want you to know from someone from the outside, I'll tell you a little bit more about us in just a few moments. Uh, my wife is here with me, and I'll introduce that whole relationship in a few moments in the message as well. But I want you to know that your pastor is the most genuine man of God I've ever met. Just the most authentic. Yes, please honor him for that. Please. He's not in the room. He's not being embarrassed. He is, he is the, a man that, uh, and I've had the privilege of traveling in so many different places and meeting so many different pastors and, and serving them. And as I serve your pastor, it is such a joy to watch and understand his heart for the kingdom of God, for the king, not just for crossroads, for the kingdom of God. And I know that that only happens when a church, a body of believers are lifting up their pastor, praying for their pastor, honoring their pastor in such a kingdom way. So commend yourselves as well. And it's an honor to be here as uh, Pastor Paul and I are growing together and and doing what God wants us to do for the kingdom. So if you'll take your notes out, I want to get started and uh, jump on a few things. And as you're doing that, I would love to read to you the opening theological statement of our message from such a theological guru as Mother Goose, if you will. So I know that you know this nursery rhyme, but I just thought I would refresh you with it. And if you know it, go ahead and you're welcome to read along with me or say it along with me. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Come on. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All... All couldn't put, (laughs) give yourselves a hand. You did real good. (laughs) Can I put this right there by you, please, ma'am? You did really well. Well, listen, it's like, have you ever studied that nursery rhyme before? Have you ever studied, I mean, really studied it? I don't know that you've ever studied it, but you've probably repeated it and you've done a good job. But as a result of me talking this weekend on this element of pride, this characteristic of pride, I, I looked into this for just a few moments, just to, the origin of it. It's not just a nursery rhyme. There is an origin of this nursery rhyme. And it was probably written about a king that rose to great heights and obviously had a great fall. It was written in the form of a riddle because if you've ever seen the illustrations of Humpty Dumpty through Mother Goose or various other authors and illustrators, they illustrate Humpty Dumpty as an egg. Have you ever seen that? But yet there's nowhere in the rhyme itself that mentions that he's an egg. It just kind of happened. It just kind of evolved because it was supposed to be the answer of a riddle concerning someone had a fall. And, and yes, obviously somewhere down the road, this guy, Mr. Dumpty, climbed the wall of success. So we're going to kind of use this as a little illustration for where we're going today. He climbed the wall of success. Now, he's reached the top. Some of you have done the very thing. You've climbed the wall of success. You've reached the top or you're heading there corporately, even personally in some ways. There's nowhere else for you to go. You, you, you're there. Now, some of us, we've got some places to go. But Mr. Dumpty seems to have done very well in life. But yet, 
as well, something went terribly wrong. That can happen to you and I. He got on top of that wall and all of a sudden had a big fall. His world is now shattered. He's broken into possibly millions of pieces and doesn't know even how to gather himself. In other words, his world needs to be put back together again. Have you ever been there? Your world, even today, you may be sitting in this room and something may be shattered around you. You may be sitting here alone, not wanting to. You may be sitting here with less money than you thought you would. You may be sitting here with the idea of what is this journey of God all about? Because your world has shattered and it needs to be put back together again. Now, what's interesting about this nursery rhyme is where Mr. Dumpty went for help. Mr. Dumpty didn't go to his neighbors. Mr. Dumpty didn't go to his friends. He didn't even go to his church. In the context of what we're talking about today and where we live, Mr. Dumpty went to the White House. (laughs) He went to the most powerful place on earth, the king, if you will. He, he got everybody involved. I mean, they had a joint session of Congress. All the king's men. Maybe that's why they couldn't put him back together. The joint session of, I, I don't know. But he, he went there. And everyone in the most powerful place on earth got involved. Everyone. And when it was all said and done, the most powerful agents on earth, the highest structure of earthly power and wealth, were unable to put Humpty Dumpty back together again so as i wrote on your notes we live maybe you can relate to this just a little bit we live in a humpty dumpty world don't we where not only are there broken people but the people that are supposed to put the broken people back together again are as broken as the broken people here's the part i want you to write down they just won't admit it Maybe the toughest thing for us to do in society, especially in America, especially in church, is to admit that we're broken. Sometimes we come in and we have our act together on the outside, but on the inside, we're a million pieces. Can you relate? In my travels, it seems that the hardest thing for people to do whether it's in California or South Carolina, where we're from, admitting that you're wrong. I remember when I got married, my father told me, you need to go and make something that symbolizes your wife. And go to that every day for a hundred times and simply learn to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I was too stubborn to even do that. So even saying I'm sorry is very difficult. It's tough to admit that you're wrong. It's tough to admit that you're broken. But on every level of society today, of society today, we're talking about this issue of pride. We see that our society is unraveling at its core, corporately, personally, maritally, financially. Our society is unraveling morally. I think of an Old Testament scripture in Second Chronicles, and I place it in your notes if you read along with me. It says, for a long time, Israel was without the true God. Kind of relates to America right now, doesn't it? For a long time, we've been without a true God. That's not what our founding fathers meant for us to be. But, but for Israel, they were without a teaching priest. They were without law. Now, there's this great encouraging verse 
stuck in here in the middle before we get to verse five and six. It says, but when in their distress, they turned to God, the God of Israel and sought him. He was found by them. It's, that's an encouraging moment that if we seek after God, he, he can be found. But then it goes right back into this moment of darkness. It says in those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Would you underline that just to kind of illustrate a little deeper of what we said earlier? We live in a Humpty Dumpty world. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. Now, here's what I want you to underline and circle if you can. For God, say that with me. Come on, participate. For, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. For God troubled them. Now, when I read this and I read that they were broken into pieces and they were nation against nation and city against city and people had no peace as they went in and they had no peace as they came out. My natural spiritual being wants to read and Satan troubled them with every distress. But that's not what it says. It says God troubled them. Listen, so I, I want you to really hear this if you hear nothing else I say today and kind of put this fill in the blanks in your notes because this is really important, especially when we get to the very foundation of what we're talking about. When God is your problem, would you just write that in there? When God is your problem, listen, only God can be your solution. When, when God is your problem, only God is your solution. Secondly, if God is the cause... Of the distress, if God is the cause of the problems, if God is the cause of all that's going on that doesn't seem to make sense, only God then can be your cure. It's amazing to me that we do still have bookstores even in the age of technology. You can walk into a bookstore like Barnes and Noble and guess what the largest section of the bookstore is? Self-help. Which tells us that we possibly are communicating that we don't need God, that all we need is each other. When God is your problem, only God can be your solution. Can I be as bold to say at that point, not a counselor, not a pastor, not a therapist, not a doctor. They are great people and tools used by God in many different ways, but only God can be your solution. Only God can be your cure. And that's what we see here. So I want to ask a question that we might try to answer to take this a little deeper to get the antidote to pride today. What do you do when your world falls apart like Mr. Dumpty? Whether your world falls apart from a circumstance that's outside of your control or whether your world falls apart from circumstances that was totally in your control. What do you do today when your world falls apart? Because it's my guess in a room, as many people as in this room and maybe those in the overflow, there are a lot of people here today, if not happening right now, your world has fallen apart. You know what that means and you've experienced a little bit of this. So as we conclude this series on hostage, talking about behaviors and talking about characteristics and talking about mindsets that can hold us hostage, that can actually hold us hostage from the blessings and the grace of God. We want to get to a New Testament passage. It's right there in your notes that will be the foundation 
to open that back up to us again today. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. If you look at it with me. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, I want you to underline this next part, would you? Because it is, is all of us. Clothe yourselves. Especially that middle part in between the commas. All of you. Clothe yourselves. All of you. Would you look to your neighbor and tell them that means you? Come on. Help me. That means you. All of you. Clothe yourselves. All of you with humility. Why did I have you go to your neighbor? Toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Here's the scary part of the verse that kind of goes in connection with what we read over earlier in Chronicles. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me read that one more time. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And let's keep the context of this going in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 7, and first of all, you know that when Peter wrote this, he didn't put verse 6 and verse 7. It was just a letter. As we've translated the Bible, we've made it easier to read and to study by putting verse numbers there. They are not original. So if you look at there, there's a comma. So this is a contextual part of the sentence. And until I started studying this a few weeks ago, as pastor asked me to speak to you today, I personally didn't even see the connection between the two of what we're talking about here. He says, he says here, let me read it. Start in verse six again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, continuing right on, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, why did I go so much into the grammar part of this? Because there's a connection here. When you are dealing with anxiety and worry because you don't believe that God cares for you, the foundation of that is pride. And I'm not sure until just a few weeks ago I've ever connected the two. I just simply thought it was anxiety. I just simply thought it was worry. What Peter is telling us here is that your anxiety... What Peter is telling us here is that your refusal to cast your anxieties onto God and let him care for you as God can and has the power to, that is pride. And that mentality holds you hostage from the blessings and grace that God wants to give you because he opposes the proud. So, what we see here... Is that, our, is that our society and the Bible is telling us that pride will hold you hostage. But, but the last thing you and I want, the last thing you and I need, come on, write it down, is for the God of all the universe to oppose you and I. Now, today, whether you're in here for the first time ever in a church and you're on the journey to experience God or try to find God or whether you've been in church since you were born like I on a pew and you've been following Christ for quite some time, I'm telling you, whatever spectrum you're on, the last thing you need is for the God of the universe to oppose you. The last thing you want is for the God of the universe to oppose you. Pride will hold you hostage from the blessings 
of God. It, and, and there's many references in the Bible where, where, where God wants to bless you. And, and it says he wants to pour out his blessings as he opens the windows of heaven. Have you ever read that? Have you ever heard that? He wants to open. He says there's one verse in the, in the book of Luke in the New Testament that says something so beautiful that if you give it, whatever it is, he will give it back to you. Pressed down, shaken together and running over. You can't even contain it into your lap. God wants to bless you, but there's a resistance. There is a characteristic. There is a mentality that we can have, especially as Americans, that will oppose that and shut that off and close the window of those blessings. Not because God punishes you, but because God cannot go against the very principles that he's written in the truth of his word. So before we dive into the antidote of what this is for us today, let's look at the foundation of what I want to talk about through an Old Testament picture, if you will. Let me set this up. I've put this in your notes, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there to 2 Kings chapter 25. But I want to set this story up. Many of you uh, know some of the stories of the kings of the, of the Old Testament, but some of you are like, well, I don't even want to agree to that because just angry men shouting at angry men and trying to be kings and take over the world, and that's just what this whole part of the Bible is about. But the beauty of this part of the Bible is it's not just Bible story. It's actual history that took place. And so God didn't even want the children, his children, to have a king in the first place. Did you know that? He wanted to be their king. He wanted to be their guide. He wanted to be their their lord and, and love on them and overshadow them and provide for them as he did. But, oh, no, no, no. There's, uh, you know, we, we just want to rebel against everything that God wants us uh, to have and the beauty of what God wants us to have it in. And they shout, we want a king. So he gave him a king. And 90% of the kings that came about and rose up into power were evil in the sight of God. This one we're going to talk about for just a few moments was no different. Although he was the son of one of the most godliest kings that took over the kingdom of Judah at the age of eight. His name was Josiah. But today his son Zedekiah, which the king Nebuchadnezzar, anybody ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar, gave him that name. It wasn't his birth given name. So Zedekiah had become king of Judah or Jerusalem, if you will, in that region, only because Nebuchadnezzar allowed him to be king and remain in that area. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the most powerful nation, or if you will, on earth. And Nebuchadnezzar was just taking over, taking over, taking over, conquering, conquering, conquering. And as you and I have collections, you may collect, I don't know, bugs, you may collect golf balls, whatever you use, you collect. We have all kinds of people that collect all kinds of things from antiques to whatever nebuchadnezzar collected kings he would pull them into prison and hold them hostage that was just a sport for him and then put them into slavery then there was a prophet around this time his name was jeremiah he actually has a book in the old testament named after him that his sole purpose in life was to essentially go to these kings and to any other person that would listen to him and say these words in a sense of what john the baptist would say to us if you're familiar with that name in the new testament repent turn away from your evil and turn back to god not very many people listen to him including zedekiah now, when Nebuchadnezzar allowed Zedekiah to remain king after Nebuchadnezzar took over Judah, he said, here's the two stipulations that you get to be king and remain king. Zedekiah, you have to pay me a lot of taxes. So I'm going to put 
oppression on the people and you put oppression on the people and tax them until you pay me what I want. And those things, as you might guess, rose and rose and rose and rose and rose. Secondly, Zedekiah, even though that oppression of taxation is going to be mighty on you, never think about rebelling against me. Because I'm Nebuchadnezzar and I have the power and the might and the army to destroy all this. It is out of my grace that you get to remain king. So Zedekiah did what a lot of us would do. He just kind of rejoiced and said, yippee, I get to be king. But in the back of his mind, he knew I'm going to put a revolt against this guy one day. I'm going to go after it. See, there's a little bit of that in all of us. Even though Jeremiah is saying to Zedekiah all throughout this history, and you can study it and read it, and it's in many different places. Jeremiah is saying to Zedekiah, Zedekiah, listen, I know you get to be king, but here's the word from the Lord. Listen, guys, surrender. That didn't make sense to Zedekiah. What do you mean surrender? I get to be king. If I surrender, he's going to destroy all this. No, Zedekiah, if you surrender, God has a plan. And none of your family will be killed. And and, And none of this will be destroyed. Because God has a plan. So you need to surrender. But it didn't make sense. Have you ever noticed that a lot of what God says compared to what you may think or what the world says doesn't really make sense? Which is why it's so difficult to surrender. I mean, there's a little bit of this king mentality in all of us, isn't there? Because it's tough to surrender everything. It's tough to surrender when the pastor asks you to, hey, hey, give your money and you don't have enough money at the end of the month and you have bills at the end of the month. And it doesn't make sense for you to surrender that because that's not naturally in the thinking of what should happen. But God's saying to surrender and if you will trust him, he'll open the windows of heaven. But it's like, mm, there's enough king mentality in me that I just want to be the king of my money. There's enough king mentality in me that I just want to be the king of my relationship. When everybody's saying, hey, listen, the Bible says, gentlemen, that you should love your wife as Christ loved the church who died for her. So the world, that means the world shouldn't revolve around you. It should revolve around Jesus being the foundation of your marriage. But I'm the king and that doesn't make much sense. And I want to remain king and she's going to serve me because the Bible says that she should submit to me. (laughs) But that's what the Bible says. And there's a lot of guys that kind of go after that. That was good. In other words, it's very difficult to surrender everything. Have you ever noticed that? Come on, be honest. It's very difficult to surrender everything. The easy things, okay, come on. I can surrender that. I can, but the tough things. The things that doesn't make sense. And only you know what they are because it's tough to admit it. It's tough to admit it. So now Zedekiah, in the last sentence of 2 Kings 24, before we read any of 25, it says this, Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. What was the one stipulation? Don't rebel against me. Zedekiah and his pride kind of relates. As I said, there's a little bit of that in all of us. You can write this down. I, I have a little note sheet blank there for you. We all want to be autonomous. What does that mean? We don't want to be accountable to anyone. 
That's the little bit of king in us. See, kings get to make the rules. Why? Because they also get to break the rules. And there's a little bit of that in all of us because we don't want to be held accountable. But see, that's what pride is all about. And that pride will destroy you. And that's why I'm using this picture in this Old Testament to show you this. So let me show you in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 25 in your notes. Are you still with me, church? Are you there? You follow along? Verse 1 says, and in the ninth year, would you circle that? Ninth year. You'll make sense of that in just a few moments. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem, laid siege to it. Would you underline that? Maybe circle it. Laid siege to it. Why? Because that's what the series is all about. They were held hostage. Now, it's interesting. Why am I having you circle ninth year, underline ninth year? Because I want you to see something here in just a few moments. As they laid siege to it, there's a there's kind of an unfamiliar term there. It says they laid siege works all around it. All around the city. A siege work. Have you ever heard that terminology? A siege work is almost like, you know, uh, ramps, if you will, or braces against the city wall so that the wall or anyone in there couldn't come out. And they built other little cities around it so that the people couldn't come out. So Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had the power to destroy this city and a power to destroy Zedekiah and take him off the planet... He decided to take it captive. He decided to hold the whole city of Jerusalem hostage. So he sieged it. Instead of killing them, he starved them. Watch this. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, or excuse me, verse 2. So the city was besieged to the 11th year. Now, what did you circle at the beginning? The ninth year. Here it is, the 11th year. So for two years, on verse 3, on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And this didn't end well. They eventually breached the walls. The people tried to get out, but Babylon was too powerful. And what took place was that they captured King Zedekiah. They captured his family. And the last thing this king, the last thing this man saw with his eyes before they gouged his eyes out was his children being killed in front of them by an evil king. One man's pride. One man's pride. Listen to me, especially you gentlemen, the week after Father's Day. One man's pride kept an entire city hostage. One man's pride, even though he was warned, the prophet came to him and said, surrender, God has a plan. One man's pride destroyed his entire family. His entire family. So I'm wondering today, what is your pride? What is your lack of surrendering everything? How often in just the past six weeks have the pastors here said, listen, you've got to come free. You've got to break through these things. You've got to surrender. You gotta, you're being held hostage. And the, what, what, what keeps you hostage, what keeps you besieged, if you will, is your pride, your unwillingness to surrender. So I'm, I'm wondering today, what is it about your pride, ladies and gentlemen? What is it about... Your lack of surrender. Could it be that your pride is holding your family hostage from the very freedom that God wants to give financially? Could it be that your pride 
An unwillingness to surrender to who God wants you to be is holding your marriage hostage. The very institution that God formed before he even instituted the church was marriage. Two, becoming one. Could your pride and unwillingness to change into who God wants you to be hold that hostage? Could your pride and unwillingness to surrender keep you from connecting to your children, whether there be children in the preteen years, especially your teenagers, connecting to them? Could your pride today keep you from being uh, promoted and advanced at work because all you do is complain about the supervision and the management? Could that pride be uh, keeping you from being who God wants you to be because he has you there, even though it may be difficult, even though it may be hard, he has you there to shine a light in this place and he is the author of promotion. Could your pride today be keeping your finances hostage because God has given you principle after principle after principle to surrender your finances and to tithe. Are you familiar with that term? And to give back to him a portion, which is worship that you'll have an opportunity to do today, a portion that he's given you, but because of our pride and not seeing how pride is connected to anxiety because we worry about the future or not having enough, we don't. And our finances are held hostage. And that's pride. Could your pride today, this is the biggie. Could your pride today be keeping you from your purpose? The very purpose that God put you on earth for. And can I just say that your purpose is not to go to work, to pay the bills, to get the money, to buy the bread, to go to work, to pay the bills, to get the money, to buy the bread, to go to work. To get... That's not your purpose. That's part of why we're here, but that's not your purpose. Can I also say that in the destination of why God put you on this earth, that your destiny is not heaven? See, many, many people who follow Christ, they just say, oh, I just can't wait to get off earth to get to heaven. No, 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 that, that's not your destiny. That's not your destiny, my friends. That's your destination. But God put you on earth to bring heaven to earth. And that's your purpose. But could pride be keeping you from that purpose? And so you feel like today sitting in this room that you're just existing. As I mentioned, Tina and I have been married in May, we just celebrated 36 years, 36 years. It's amazing. Flatter me for a moment. I don't look like I've been married for 36 years. And she definitely doesn't look like she's been married for 36 years. She's on the front row sitting right there. So I, I was going to say, have you ever seen an angel before? Let me introduce you to one. So she's not going to stand no matter how you clap for her. She's not going to do it. We have two adult daughters who are both married to pastors, and that's a beautiful thing, um, and, and five grandchildren. And so why am I telling you this? Because we're originally from Charleston, South Carolina, and that's where we spent most of our life, except for a little bit of time in Omaha, Nebraska. And, and I do want you and encourage you, because it is our hometown, where we're from, although today we live in San Jose, but we're from Charleston. Um, the tragedy that took place 
was, a, was just a tragic, tragic, tragic thing. And um, I knew the pastor, Clemente, very well. Worked with him on several projects spiritually in the city of Charleston and surrounding some things politically as well. He was one of our state senators and uh, a great, great man of God that was taken too soon. About uh, 36 years ago, when I decided to marry my wife, I knew that my parents didn't have the money to send me to college. So I knew in order for me to get an education that the route for me to go was the military. So I joined the Air Force, spent seven years in the Air Force, and they did pay 100 percent of my education and my graduate degree, which is an amazing thing. So I appreciate those of you who are serving, those of you who have served. We applaud you. We applaud you in the military. When we left Charleston 36 years ago, we drove out of Charleston with what we had just a little bit. And we were on our way to Omaha, Nebraska. And I looked in the rearview mirror, looked at my wife and said these words because it was very true. I don't ever want to come back to this city. And there was anger in me. There was some vile in me. I hated Charleston, South Carolina. I didn't want to be there. Can I use this terminology? I'm going to use it whether you like it or not. Um, Because I'm up here. It was, it was full of rednecks. Do you know what a redneck is? People on the West Coast know what a redneck is. Full of them. People just hated for the sake of hate. People that didn't like people for the sake of the color of their skin. And I, it makes me emotional because of the tragedy that happened. I couldn't picture that as a young 19-year-old man who was raised in church had a father who taught me that there was one color and that color was red and it was through the blood of Jesus. And I just couldn't stand it. And it was everywhere. And I looked at my wife and said, we are never coming back here. We are leaving and good riddance. But yet my family was there. So about 15 years later, I got a phone call from her brother who asked me to come back to Charleston temporarily, mind you, because he knew that I wasn't going to come back. Would I come back and perform his wedding? He was finally going to ask the girl that I introduced them to even in high school to marry her. And I said, yes, can't wait to get back. So we went back for the wedding and bear with me for just a moment as I get to why I'm telling you this story in the rehearsal at the wedding. I'm surrounded by everyone, been gone for 15 years, but I'm surrounded by everyone that I knew as a child. I went to school with them and went to high school with them. Bunch of rednecks. I mean, (laughs) bunch of people that all they knew how to do was hunt and fish and kill alligators, man, and hate people. And all throughout this rehearsal, they were looking at me and Tina like, there were stars in their eyes. And I'm like, what's going on? And they finally came to me and said, tell us how you've done it. I said, done what? How have the two of you stayed married? And then it finally hit me. Here was this young man and here was this young man and here was this young man, all the groomsmen and then the best man. They'd been married two or three times and three times and on his fourth marriage and addicted to drugs and can't get over alcohol. And so they're looking at us like we're some, you know, a couple from outer space. And I said, look, here's the deal. It's God being the foundation. If God is not your foundation, then you are, and that never works. If, you, if your universe is not centered around God, then it's centered around you, and therefore marriage isn't going to work. And these guys were in tears. 
that night, about three o'clock in the morning, I'm, I'm not sleeping. I can't, I, all I can think about is this conversation going on. So I get up out of bed and I go drive around the city because this is where I'm from and God's just breaking my heart and I'm crying about what I've discovered and what I've seen and the conversations that I've had. And, and I'm knowing at this moment that God is speaking to my heart, not audible, not a twilight thing going on, but just this small voice inside of me saying, this is where I want you back. And I'm fighting it like, oh, God, no. Yes, this is where I want you. I brought you here for this purpose. And I've shown you this because they need me. You know what I did? I went back. I didn't tell her anything about that conversation with God. And I said, no way. I went back to Omaha, Nebraska, where it was comfortable, where I was still king. And I'm going to tell you, because time doesn't permit me to tell you for the next two years, the horror that took place in our life. I mean, you talk about being broken to pieces, thinking that we weren't going to make it. I mean, I left the ministry for a little while in that moment just because it got horrible. And then I woke up one day recognizing that this wasn't the enemy. This wasn't the devil. God was causing this distress. And I had to surrender. And guess where I surrendered? Charleston, South Carolina. And so for the last 20 years, we've been there. Pastoring in Charleston. Promoting unity in Charleston. Promoting there's only one color in Jesus. And we've seen churches come. And I'm going to tell you, there are things that are happening in Charleston today that the news media will never report Because it's happening behind the scenes and in the spiritual realm that we still need to be praying about. It's happening more than just holding hands. Now some things are really happening in hearts of people in Charleston. But if you don't surrender, friends, if you don't give it over to Christ, if you don't surrender, your world starts falling apart. And that's what the question we ask today. What happens when your world falls apart what could happen when your world falls apart so let me answer that by asking another question what's the solution to all that well it was found right there in verse 5 of first peter here's the solution are you ready clothe yourselves all of you with humility clothe yourselves all of you with humility so i want to tell you what humility is today are you still there humility is the opposite of pride it's the opposite of pride But I want to give you the true definition of humility. Write this down. Humility is not a dark cloud that follows you so you can keep your head down and not be confident in anything and just let everybody run over you and walk over you and talk how they want. That's not humility. That's a rug. (laughs) Humility is total dependence on God. Total. That's humility. That's how Moses could write in the book of Numbers without bragging on himself, Moses, the most humble man in the world. How do you write that about yourself if you're just head down, dark cloud? No, no, no. What Moses was writing is Moses dependent on God more than anyone in the world because of the responsibility God has placed on me. And he's given that to each of us. You know what it's called? Purpose. And without dependence upon God, you're not going to fulfill your purpose. 
You're just going to go to work every day to try to get ahead so you can get enough money to pay the bills and maybe get a little more fun and recreation in. That's not your purpose. That's just the benefit of living on earth. But that's not your purpose. Humility is total dependence on God. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says this. Trust in the Lord. It's right in your notes. With what? All. Say that word with me. All of your heart. Not the easy parts. Not some parts of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean or depend on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Whether you are a Christ follower. Or whether you have been following Christ forever. Everybody I know wants their paths to be straight. No one wants crooked paths. How do you get that? By trusting in God with all of your heart. See, listen. Humility, write this down. Is the shadow of God. Where God's presence is. There is humility and trust. It's the shadow where God is, humility rests. Where the presence of self is, it's pride. God is not in that. And so what I'm asking you today is ask for the shadow of God to walk around you. Not that dark cloud that we've always thought that we had to be if we were a humble person. No, rise up on the inside and know that the Bible says, the Word of God says that you, with God, can do all things. You are more than conquerors. Not just a conqueror, but you're more than a conqueror. And that's part of the purpose, but you've got to know that on the inside and allow the shadow of God to overshadow you. And that's where humility and trust lies. Because you see, the opposite of that is pride. And if you'll write this in your notes, pride is self-sufficiency. It's self-reliance. That's what pride is. Moses, again, warned us of that in Deuteronomy 8. And you can just write on the side of your notes. I didn't put that in there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. He warned the people, the children. Hey, once you get into the promised land, be careful. Once you have rest and once you have satisfaction, that you not look back and say, look what I've done. He warned him against that. He said, God even gives you the breath and the strength so you can rise up and prosper. God is the author of all that. But pride is self-sufficiency. Pride says, I did it. Pride says, I did it. Pride says, it's my education. I paved the way. No, God opened the doors for you, friends. See, pride refuses to trust God. It refuses to trust God. Therefore, here's the connection. You ready for the connection? When you refuse to trust God, therefore, there's anxiety. Therefore, there's worry. Come on, are you with me? There's the connection that Peter was trying to make. There's stress about your future. Oh, my Lord, what if I lose my job? And, and, and you can't sleep. And there's, there's this job security thing going on all the time. Rather than trusting that God is in charge. And, and as Jeremiah told Zedekiah, God has a plan. Pride refuses to trust in God. Uh, we're living in a society today where there is more. I, I've never seen it in growing up. And in the last 10 or 12 years, I've seen more people dealing with anxiety attacks. Taking medication for anxiety. And more than I've ever seen in all of my life. And, and sleep aids are becoming pharmaceuticals number one drug just to go to sleep because we've got so much stuff running through our minds of worry and stress and anxiety. And as a result of the stress, then physically we're breaking down. And all that, Peter is connecting it to pride. 
that here's the deal. When you clothe yourselves in humility, that's casting your anxieties on God because he, come on, cares for you. You have to believe that part. The greatest hindrance of living anxiety free is pride. It will hold you hostage. So how do you humble yourselves as we close this down today? How do you humble yourselves? How do you cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you? That's what humbling yourself is. You, you cast your anxiety on God. So I want to, I want to break this down today in a practical sense for you. I don't want it just to be a sermon. Okay. I don't want just to be a teaching from someone you don't know, even though I feel like I know you and I know your pastor so well and loving so dearly. I want to give you some practical, this is what you need to do when you wake up tomorrow. I want to challenge you. I want to give you a challenge, if you will, for tomorrow and for every day after that and every day after that and every day after that. This is how you do it. Living this out practically is what Peter tells us to do. So here's your challenge tomorrow when you wake up. And before you put on these clothes to look nice, to go to work or go out in the yard and put whatever you do, before you put on your clothes, I want you to go and stand in front of a mirror. Honestly, practically, and do this. Stand in front of a mirror and, 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 and clothe yourself with humility. How do you do that? There's a phenomenal scripture that I put the reference in your notes. In John chapter 15, the last part of verse 5. In John chapter 15 is that whole scripture that talks about God being the vine and we're the branches. Are you familiar with that? And in this particular statement, I want you to do this tomorrow when you wake up. I want you to quote the last part of that scripture by looking in the mirror and saying these words. Today, I can do nothing, God, apart from you. Out loud, just say it. I can do nothing, God, apart from you. Here's, the, here's what I'm really asking you to do. Remember at the very beginning? Admit that. Look in the mirror. I'm asking you to preach to your heart. Why? Because the Bible says your heart, unchecked, is wicked. And it will tell you, it will lie to you, it will cause all kinds of stuff going on you. And that's why even Proverbs, Solomon tells us to guard our heart above everything else. Because it's the wellspring of life comes from here. So tomorrow morning, the first thing I want you to do is look in the mirror and say to yourself, out loud, every day, start with this. Apart from you, God, I can't do anything today. And just let it roll from there because you gave me breath. You gave me sleep last night. Lord, you're going to give me the energy to work today. You provided the breakfast that I'm about to eat today. Because apart from you, I can't do anything. Although I have alluded that I can. I can't. And then secondly, right there in your notes, say out loud today, I choose to trust you, Jesus, with all my heart. And then say these words out loud as we've talked about them all morning. I surrender everything. Very practical steps. I surrender everything. And friends, you have to do that every day. Why? Because the Bible says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough of worry of its own. Amen? Let's pray together. Would you close your eyes with me? Bow your heads all across this place. Nobody getting up, nobody walking around other than band members right now. Thank you so much. Just you and God. 
I'm, I'm not sure how often you're asked to just close your eyes and just you and God right now. I want to ask you a personal question, just you and God. Is there one area that you're thinking of right now? Maybe you've thought of it all morning long. And I'm going to ask you to even, with no one looking around, this is you and God, please. No one's going to ask you what it is. No one's going to come up to you. You're not going to have to get up or anything. It's just This is a moment to admit to God. Is there one area where you just have not surrendered, but today you say, God, I'm, I'm giving it to you. Would you raise your hand? There's just one area. Yes, hands are going up just everywhere. This, you know that area. Would you just keep it up as long as it is comfortable for you? Because see, a hand raise is, a, is the, just the universal sign of surrender. And some of you, you've got them both up because you know what that area is and how much it takes to surrender that. And would you just keep that hand up and speak to God? In your words, God, I'm done dealing with this. You know what this is. I've not even admitted this to anybody. It's a secret. But today, I surrender it to you. I give it to you. It's just causing me so much pain and so much heartache. And it's holding me hostage. And I'm ready to be free. So I surrender this to you right now. Right now. Just hands are everywhere just becoming free. And it's a daily communication. It's a daily conversation with God, friends, because the enemy will come back and try to put you back into that captivity. And you've got to daily admit to God your need for him. Even with still hands up, as long as you're comfortable, you can put them down whenever you want to. But that's you and God right there. But with many hands up, maybe there's someone in this room today and you've never surrendered anything to God. You've never given your life to God. And today's the day. Without me trying to go into any kind of manipulation, but you know today you're sitting here and the purpose is to surrender your life to God, all of it, and you've never done that. And today is it. Would you raise your hand if you say, yes, Pastor, today, today is that day. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Today is that day that you're going to surrender. It's just you and Jesus. But I would encourage you as you raise that hand to surrender to God, just to say to him right now, Lord, I surrender everything to you. My entire life, my heart is yours. Become my personal savior. I don't want to be that anymore. You are. From this day forward. And here's my encouragement to you today as we close. Admit that to somebody. As you've raised your hand, tell someone that you've given your life to Christ. That you've surrendered to him. Even if you just write it on that card and turn it into this wonderful church. And allow this team to pray for you. Father God, today we are here and every one of us... We are here not by accident, not because someone invited us, because you had a destiny with us in this place today. 
And Lord, it's, you, did, you didn't destroy Zedekiah. You didn't destroy Jerusalem because you were angry at them. Yes, they, they defied principles. But Lord, you bring distress and you bring these things into our life because of love. And you want to get our attention. And you want to draw us closer to you and, and allow us to understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. But yet so often we still are so stubborn. Forgive us of that stubbornness, God. Forgive us of trying to do it on our own as we look to you today and every day. Lord, we say to you that there is none like you. And we admit that we love you with all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our soul and all of our mind. That's all of it, God. All of it. Thank you for meeting us where we are. In Jesus' name, everyone together said, come on, amen. amen. Do, you, do you know what amen means? So be it. That's what amen is. It's not just a religious church term. It means so be Every time you say amen, you're saying so be it. So be it. Well, what we want to do now, I have the privilege of transitioning our service into our time of giving back to God, our offering and our tithe. And maybe this is a day that you can come out of captivity into freedom financially. And maybe you have your checkbook and you've never written a check in the name of the Lord to the church, to the kingdom of God. Today might be that day. So I encourage you to give, give back a portion. If it's tied, that means 10%. Maybe you're not quite there, but you're just going to give it all as, as much as you can to God today. For those of you who are guests here at Crossroad today, thank you for being here. We're not asking for any money unless God is dealing with your heart. Then you do what God is telling you to do. But if you'll put that connection card in so that we know you are here, we can pray for you. And the offerings that comes by as our ushers are preparing for that. Hey, can I pray for us as we worship God through giving? Can we do that? Father, thank you today again for your many blessings. We want to worship you now, Lord, by giving back to you a portion of what you've given to us. Lord, we do that in so many methods. And some of us today are physically putting uh, cash in the offering. Some of us are writing checks. Some of us have done that online. There's methods. But, Lord, we just want to worship you today by giving this portion of our lives and provision back to you in a way of thanking you. Lord, our hearts are all yours. Guide us today. Lead us today. Make our paths straight. Help us and strengthen us and show us how to trust you every day. Surrender to you every day. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.